Welcome to episode 326 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Monday, April the 10th, 2023. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's longer than usual show, it's uh, one hour and 45 minutes, I talk with ex-professional cyclist James Hibbard, author of The Art of Cycling, a lyrical book on philosophy and a life lived on two wheels. And joining me in a sort of tag team uh, was fellow author Max Lennard, who supplied one of the blurbs for James's wonderful book. I am honoured uh, today to be joined by two authors, one of whom, Max Lennard, is actually on my time zone. So hi, Max. Hi, Carlton. And whereabouts are you, Max, today? I am in sunny East London. It's sunny in Newcastle as well. You know, we're, 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 we're living the dream uh, <laughs> here in the UK at the moment. Not in the UK and not on our time zone. Uh, we have another author, um, another cycling-connected author, because we're all cycling-connected authors here, uh, James Hibbard. So hi there, James. How are you doing, Carlton? Very good to actually be on the podcast, and it's sunny as well in Northern California, although that's probably <laughs> a little less, sunny little less surprising than sun in the UK. No, people on this podcast, uh, we have a frequent uh, number of guests from Southern California who I, I almost joke and say, what's the weather like there? Because I know it's going to be, you know, the worst that's going to happen is they might have to put arm warmers on. You know, that, that literally is generally the worst they have to do. Uh, up here, it's actually been a bit a bit bad, Carlton. It, it's been bad in Northern California here. It's been like like rain like I, I never recall since childhood. So it's not, it's not always sunny. Not, you're on, I guess Northern California is different, isn't it? Because most of the guests who, who are regulars on here are Southern California. Oh, yeah. We're so gonna be, you do get more weather there, don't you? We get a lot more. And we're going to be talking a lot, hopefully, yeah. about California and... Yeah, I think we can dive into some of the big cultural differences, in fact, between Southern and Northern California when it comes to cycling culture. Okay. So, uh, first of all, I want to, I because we're going to be doing a tag team sort of here, or a Madison, you know, through and off kind of thing <laughs> here with, uh, with, with me and Max. We are going to be ganging up a little bit on... On, on, on James, and we will talk about because uh, it, it, it's, it's James's, um, in effect, second edition, so paperback edition of his book, rather than the, the, that first paper, um, hardback uh, uh, version of his book. But let's get to Max first of all. Um, Max, I've done numerous stories, well, at least two, on your Kickstarter books, including one of which I know you're working on now uh, on a famous Californian mechanic. Um, so you can tell us about that. But can you first of all tell us about, I mean, you've done other books, you've done a, a kind of a cycling climbs book and, and why cyclists are attracted to going up uh, against gravity. And you've also done a book uh, about the last rider in a race. I, I, I almost wanted to say loser there, but of course the the, the, the person who's last in a, in a bike race isn't a loser at, at, at all. So, so 
So ground us on this this show by first of all, Max, telling us about your books. Okay. Well, yes, my first in inverted commas proper book was called Lantern Rouge: The Last Man in the Tour de France, and that really does exactly what it says on the tin. And the the, the last guy in the tour was given the nickname the Lantern Rouge, uh, the Red Lantern, uh, probably after the lantern that used to swing on the back of a on the back of a train to show the guard that every carriage had passed through um and i think it was a kind of underdog thing given by the fans it was never an official tour de france classification um they didn't like it because they thought it it you know celebrated failure and it took the shine off the winner and took the focus off but actually i thought you know cycling is a well at least road cycling is a team sport and you have all these other aspects to to the story you've got you know self self sacrifice uh you've got you know working for your leader you've got the teamwork aspect you've got sort of horrendous injuries you've got incredible stories of of really great cyclists who who've managed uh, one way or another uh, to come last um so really that was digging down and you know, into you know trying to subvert the ideas of success and failure and and you know take a look at um uh, what we mean when we think about those things and and you know for in a lot of ways if cycling if cycling race is just a publicity game then um you know if the last guy in the race gets a lot of publicity then he's really done done a job mm-hmm. for his sponsors mm-hmm. and, and guys used mm-hmm. to, people used to hide to hide behind cars and you know um lose time deliberately to try and get last mm. place <laughs> <laughs> so, right and then and then your gravity book yeah, well, it's called a higher calling, and and this is m- maybe where we're getting kind of more into um, Jones's kind of territory because higher calling was a, was the subtitle is uh, cycling's obsession with mountains, um, and that and it's really trying to work out why we like going to the mountains and and why we like doing something that's so difficult in a way, um, and so that breaks down into a few different things. You can say, well, partly there's the kind of you know competition thing so i i went to a mountain in the south of france the bonnet in the alps which is the highest mountain the highest road pass in the alps or at least that's what the signs say uh and and had it tried to dig into you know the kind of competition of the tour de france and the giro d'italia and all the beautiful history but also the natural environment you're in um and the kind of the training that goes into it and the people who are around there and and the history of the place and all the different things that make mountains such a sort of special obsession for cyclists. And the Alps and mountains and and bikes comes into the Jobs Bradbrook really. He he was a he was a big champion of of cycling in Europe, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, Jobs Brand was he was a a, a strange character um, who I heard of because he he. he made what is the kind of the definitive text on wheel building or at least it was back when people used to actually build wheels and not just buy them um you know ready made in from a factory and he was a california cyclist who was kind of a, a mentor to people like tom ritchie and other frame builders in the area and he, he died in 2015 i should say so so if he were alive now he'd be he'd be 90 or so um and he rode he rode in the Santa Cruz Mountains and the Sierra Nevada and all the all these amazing places in California and and just took his road bike uh, into the dirt in ways that 
people in the 50s and well 60s 70s 80s just didn't really do i'm talking about before mountain biking and um before mountain bikes were invented and and definitely before gravel bikes and all of that but he also would come to the alps every year for 50 years um and do kind of exactly the same route uh, or pretty much but depending on the weather each time staying in the same places and uh, taking pictures in the same place at the same place for 50 years in a row and he left behind this amazing archive of photos and ride reports and stuff like that and um he was he was pretty influential and int- big in the bike industry too in his own sort of weird outsider kind of way so he um he worked with a local company in California, not far from where, where James is called Avocet and came up with all sorts of stuff that they then put on the market. Um, and cycle computers and, and all sorts of things like that. Exactly. He was, he was the guy who, who came up with the idea of riding treadless tires, um, which people thought was crazy when, when he, uh, when he, he proposed it and everyone else had some tread on, but he said, you know, he was a real kind of engineer's engineer, and he he proved to Avocet and then to the rest of the industry that that uh, that you got more traction from a from a treadless tire, and, and that you could actually lean further. At least you know if you're talking about a perfect tarmac road, anyway. So so um yeah, he, he was a really interesting guy, and and I remember seeing these photos of him years ago and being blown away by this. He was six foot five, and so he had a bike frame that was about. I think he had a 65 centimeter frame um, with a head tube as, as you know, long as a long as my arm basically. And then there's, then there's pictures of him in the Alps on on gravel roads before they were all tarmac, and just you know, sort of expanded the idea of what cycling could be for me. And what stage are you at with that book? Because you you were successful in your Kickstarter. So what stage are you at now? We are just finalizing the uh, layouts and spreads and it goes to print in the next few weeks. So it is, it, it, the hard work is almost done, but uh, it'll be a while till it, it's out. It'll be around in uh, sometime in the summer. Mm-hmm. And then the, there's, the, there's, a, there's a, a slight link there in that, you know, you un, unmade up roads, cycling in the Alps, certainly cycling in the mountains. It is a link to another one of your 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 books, which is also kickstarted, uh, which was like the Rough Stuff Fellowship. Yeah, exactly, and and I, probably the context of, for these these uh, photo based books is I I decided that I started a publishing company a few years ago and have just by accident, I guess, or by luck, come across these amazing archives of photos and things. The Rough Stuff Fellowship uh, was. They're known as the oldest, uh, the world's oldest off-road bike club, um, founded in 1955 in a pub in Lempster, which is in Herefordshire, not far from the Welsh border. And that, it seems funny to think about it, but back then, the idea of off-road, they, they called it rough stuff. And, you know, actually, the, the roads themselves can't have been, you know, lots of them in very good quality at all. So the idea that they'd go off and, seek the kind of byways and bridle paths and, and that kind of thing really set them aside from cycling of the era and they were not they're very non-competitive it was all about camping and enjoying the outdoors and that kind of thing um but also masochism there's an awful lot of masochism there wasn't there there was still like you know they were quite happy to walk up stuff which oh, was well, which the, is one daft. Of the- 
<laughs> well, one, one of the founder members, uh, he, he, his famous, infamous quote from him says, I, I never go for a walk without my bike. Um, so I think basically that, you know, they just wanted to get out into the great outdoors and, you know, were, were happy pushing their bikes if, if it meant that they could go across a, you know, a pass in the Lake District or through a field or, or, mm. you know, up on the moors or at the fells and, and, Again, they left behind this incredible. Well, I say left behind. The club is still going strong, but mm. you know, over the past fifty, sixty, seventy years, they've created an amazing archive of beautiful pictures of, of people carrying their bikes through fields, essentially. <laughs> so that that masochism and yeah. and the, the, the outlierism is definitely going to be um, picked out here when we're talking to. Uh, uh, to James, because James is the author of, and I'm going to just name the whole title here and it and its subhead: "The Art of Cycling Philosophy, Meaning and a Life on Two Wheels." Uh, now, I've given uh, before before it came out on air here. I, I gave Max uh, complete carte blanche to jump in whenever he wants to on this, uh, uh, but I, I have got a, a bunch of questions. Um, for James as we, we we go through here but I'm going to start uh, by 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 maybe describing before I even come up with the first question I kind of describe because I've, I've read uh, uh, James's book it's fascinating uh, it's wonderful I know it's been um, shortlisted for a, a bunch of awards and this as I said before it, this is like the paperback edition uh, that we're talking about now because the the, the hardback uh, clearly has been successful and the, and, and the publisher Who, who's the publisher it's Quercus in the UK and Pegasus in the United States will be publishing the hardback on May 2nd of this year so it's the first American edition uh, so I'll just describe it so to people I mean I, I want people to go out and buy of course and and, and read it for themselves but I'll just give it a, a brief thumbnail sketch so it's kind of philosophy for dummies but with added spandex <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got this challenging three-day ride with two of your fast mates. So you've got two two former uh, pro cyclists because you, James, you, you're a former pro cyclist uh, in the US. Right. Uh, so there's this. It, it, it's this kind of uh, interplay between the history, mostly of Western um, philosophical thought. There's some Eastern stuff. There's certainly a fair bit of uh, Zen stuff in there towards right. the end. Uh, but it's mostly Western stuff. Uh, then it's then it's almost like um, why we cycle. There's there's a definite section there, and that the pain and the suffering and the masochism definitely comes out there, right. and and the and the kind of the almost the lonerism come comes out there, and 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 how cycling attracts perhaps a certain kind of person, and but then you've got this 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 uh, just uh, it's a narrative of. Uh, a, a, I'd like to say it's enjoyable, but of course it's cycling, so it's not enjoyable. <laughs> it's just something that you suffered with fellow uh, riders. So there's, right. there's, there's, you leave your wife and your young child, and you go off, and you, and you haven't ridden for a long time. Is it ten years since you'd, you'd ridden? It's been a, a, at least ten years since I'd ridden seriously. Right. Yeah. So it's, there's a nice, you know, I, I certainly uh, associate myself with that period of not riding and then getting back into it. Because you're like basically training to go on a training ride. Right. Or, 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 <laughs> so so there's, there's that huge segment of the book. It's probably, I haven't counted it, but it's probably the biggest segment of the book is actually this narrative of this ride uh, in California uh, with 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 your, your, your mate. So that's basically what the book 
is about. It's a very long book, very interesting and fascinating book. So I'm not belittling it there, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to praise it anyway. But first of all, because there, there are bits in there that I'm when I'm I'm reading this, I, I know parts of of. Of, of of where you are because you're you're Morgan Hill, yes, indeed. So yeah, really a little bit south of San Jose is where I grew up. So yes. that that gives you any. So sort of Morgan bearing. Hill is is is. I mean, you say in there, it's like it saw the, the convergence of cycling and the counterculture. And as soon as I I read that, I I thought of Gary Fisher, I thought of mountain biking, right? I thought of Grateful Dead, right? And 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 their connection with cycling, and then Morgan Hill, of course. You have, I'm sure you must all the time when you go out riding, you must see Mike Sinyard and and the specialized Indeed. Uh, riders who who go out and 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 suffer every lunchtime. I, I did and I and actually spent some time working working for specialized as well. So I know I know Mike and certainly that whole sort of ecosystem that Max was alluding to um, of really a counterculture meeting cycling. Um, is very much grounded in the Bay Area, the Peninsula. Companies like Richie, Avocet, uh, Specialized in Mike Sinyard, um, Jim Gentis and Giro. So this whole sort of confluence of 1960s counterculture meets uh, European road cycling. And, and I think that that was certainly a pre-Lance Armstrong era and very much an era that, that influenced me through my first club um, and, and the the shops owner who I mentioned in the book named Terry Shaw, and this whole sort of ecosystem of uh, looking at the Coney Manual and Junior's Ride Rollers and Small Gears, a very sort of uh, I think lost lost art view of what the sport of cycling is, and a very sort of you, you describe in the book what the, what the Coney Manual is. Yes. So C-O-N-I dot, 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 dot there, like a, yep. an Italian purely translated book. So, but just tell people who don't know what the Coney Manual is. So it's this, uh, when there was very, very little information on what uh, European cyclists were doing, the Coney Manual was a training manual that was translated from the Italian uh, into English and essentially was the only sort of insight window into into how it was that that European cyclists were so much better than uh, American cyclists, right? When there was a sort of continental European mystery about the sport, the sort of first insight in, I, I believe it was the late 70s that it first showed up in the United States. But this was the sort of, of manual that, that was up there with, okay, how does how did all the great Italians, how does even sort of uh, great Belgian riders, how is this being done? And this, the Coney Manual was a sort of proxy insight into European cycling at a time when there was just very, very little knowledge of what was, was actually being done from a physiological perspective. So just bringing Max back into this, in that uh, the, the reason I've connected you two is because I got a press release uh, from, from your publisher, in the U.S., asking me to, uh, to 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 write about this book, and I I needed to write back and said, well, yes, I'd like to to get more information. But what jumped out at me, of course, is I because I know Max, and Max is one of the names that's on the blurb uh, of your book, and he, he's he's on the press release. So it's like, oh well, Max, I know, you know, I've 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 been in you know in rooms writing uh, <laughs> with with Max, you know, in, on on the same publication. So let's yeah. kind of rope Ma- Max in here. So, so Max, what, what what is your connection? And 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 you could even maybe even read out your blurb that you you've said for for, for James. But but what 
what is your take on 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 james's book maybe you want to like maybe change my pricey into a different pricey oh gosh well i don't have the blurb in front of me i actually i was i was searching high and low for my physical copy <laughs> i couldn't find it but i do have i do have the pdf thankfully so i managed to brush up on it again before uh for coming on air but um it, it's just a coincidence that james and i are published by the same guys in in the states but james wrote to me uh, i can't remember when but you know back when this before it was published uh, in hardback and said he would really appreciate me giving it a read and a quote and and I did and well I, I gave it a read and I was just sort of enchanted by the way that it mixed together the kind of personal story and and the stuff that's very grounded in in him and and his uh his journey through through being a pro cyclist and became perhaps becoming a bit disillusioned with that and then picking up a bike again and then going on this this ride down the coast of California with the kind of wider things, uh, you know, wider questions of life and bringing all these different philosophers into it and, and you know, slotting names that I knew a bit of but not very much about, you know, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Sartre, well, I knew a bit bit about Sartre actually, but, but uh, you know, bringing them in and making them a- applicable both to, to cycling and, and to the kind of things that, happen to you when you're cycling and wh- whether that's physical or emotional or um or you know the kind of the pain that you're talking you've talked about Carlton already but also a thing that I liked particularly and you know I spent a while on a bike uh, over the years puzzling out different things and quite niche things about mountains and history and that sort of thing um and I guess, but my higher calling book, you know, is trying to ask the why of why we why we like mountains, that kind of thing. But you know, wh- one of the things I always thought about cycling was was that, you know, it, I, you know, you say I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to go out and and think about something. Maybe I'm stuck on something at work or something like that. And you go out, and after two minutes, you don't think about anything. You know, your brain mm. just completely completely wipes, and then you go, come home, and then usually to me it happens I, I get in the shower and then I suddenly have a brainwave but but the idea of not thinking I think is really super important and that, that's something that James comes to very quickly in the book and and kind of explores I, I don't know what you think about that James if there's more more you can say about the kind of perverse attraction of not thinking well I think I mean I keep sort of bringing it back to California culture and I think what's very interesting about the current cultural moment that's that's very Californian but it's very spread absolutely globally is the sort of internet and this hyper rational belief that everything that can be accomplished and the things that are most significant and most pressing all have very tangible uh, rational answers right where sort of uh, what we're talking about in terms of thinking is in fact priced so highly in our in our current cultural moment um, that what we're talking about and trying to describe in terms of sort of using Zen or using Nietzsche or a figure like Heidegger, this idea of not thinking uh, because you're so engaged in the physical world and in the tangible is I mm-hmm. think increasingly being lost by always being online and plugged in and what tends to be valued things like writing code or being productive and i think that that while those are very very important 
and have certainly been emphasized by 2,500 years of Western philosophy, you're losing a lot of what it is to be human by thinking that that is the only important experience of what it is to be alive. So I think that that the art of cycling could have been about playing the violin. It could have been about digging ditches. It could have been about chess. Anything that just really pushes you back into the tangible uh, world and and not this world of rational abstraction. That that tangible world, which you you describe in the book, and and, and you you talk about how cyclists are, are very much concentrating on the moment. And, and yes, as as Max was saying, you know, you you. you almost think about very little but when you're what you don't you don't see cyclists generally on their phones looking at screens bringing it back to that 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 point you're raising there right but you do see motorists on their unfortunately you see motorists on their on their screens very very frequently so there's something about cycling not not just the fact you're on skinny tires and if you crash you're going to hurt yourself there's potentially something more about cycling the visceral aspect of cycling that where you you're really not enveloped by anything right very very close to nature in a way that you know even a sports car a driver of a sports car is not right connected to nature in that way so what is it about cycling that makes you not be attached to your screen whereas in a car you are you potentially you you, you want to be attached to a screen so because you think it's so boring that you can just do it without uh, having to pay attention well i think i think if you you think through let's go back to car i mean you're absolutely right but let's go back and and not lump cars all together let's think about um uh 1960s mg with a manual transmission uh, being driven on a mountain road with a convertible, right? That's the sort of one spectrum of driving an automobile. Another would be driving a Tesla down Highway 101 in California, right? You're completely isolated, you're, you're temperature controlled, everything else. Along that spectrum, I think that what's, what's interesting to think about is this idea of how mediated it is, right? Your, your experience and your, your interface with the automobile and and hence with the road. So in one instance, you've got a manual transmission and you're trying to sort of feel through the the gear shift. You're having to to sense what's going on on the road surface and that's coming through direct actual mechanical interfaces rather than some computer system. So I think that that you just keep on that spectrum in terms of things either being mediated through different computer interfaces or not. And the bicycle is, is, of course, even less mediated than even a, a bike with DI2 and electronic shifting is less mediated than, for example, that MG. So I think that, that the amount of feedback that you're getting from the environment um, and whether that feedback is direct or run through some other system to make it ostensibly easier to, to control or handle uh, is really the the way to start to think through that. This idea of of mediation, I think, is is huge when you're operating uh, a vehicle that's hurtling through space. What that vehicle is telling you and how. Because you make the point in the book about how you know speed. We we all like speed, or cyclists certainly like speed, and lots of people like speed. But it's not it, in in the real world. You know, we are very often going very fast in a car, in an airplane, whatever. 
but it, we're divorced from that speed. Right. Whereas on a bicycle, you're not divorced from that speed. You, you're, in, you're potentially in spandex. Right. You are, you, as you say, the two square centimeters uh, of, of rubber. Is it, you know you're going to hurt yourself if you fall off. Or if, you, if you're in a car, you seem as though you're going to, oh, right. 70 miles an hour, I'll survive that. Right. Right. The, the, the lack of, of feeling that there's consequences in a car is certainly different than, than when you're on a bike. I mean, you, you sort of 35 miles an hour on a descent feels like 85 miles an hour easily in, in an automobile. Uh, so yeah, the, the sort of sense of existential threat and consequences is on a bike is, is massively different than than that of being in a car, particularly being in a, a modern modern car with air conditioning and everything else. You're just, you're, as you say, absolutely divorced from the environment in a way that you're not, you're certainly not ever on a bicycle. And you make a good point. I mean, I hadn't actually thought of this before about why, you know, people, or certainly pros, uh, uh, prefer tubular tires. And you're, you're describing that very well. You did like two or three paragraphs of of it just it just you you feel the the curve you feel everything much more because of that particular profile right and I, right. and I hadn't really thought of it in that way before it's like yes you should it's daft to have a, a, a tubular tie for all sorts of reasons but you just describe it's like yes but the feeling you get from a tubular tie is unlike the control you feel you have right I mean it, it, it's just to, to sort of illustrate I mean a tubular tire has a as a round profile that's glued to the rim whereas a clincher has a u-shape and, and you can just sort of think as you're leaning a bicycle over, having a very consistent round profile as the bike is, is leaned over uh, to a greater and greater extent, as opposed to a U-shape, is hugely advantageous to just have a sense for you're not, you don't have a changing profile along with the change in, in the angle of the lean of the bicycle, which is a, a massive advantage. And yeah, I mean, I, I love the feel of a beautiful Italian-made tubular like nothing else, uh, the way it, it rolls over pavement and just resonates. Max, what are you, what are you riding on? Was, did that resonate with you? Is that, were you like nodding your head here thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out of my tubulars this afternoon? Are you, <laughs> are you a tubular rider? Are you a clincher rider? Are you a gravel bike? You, you, know, you want the fatter. What are you? I'm just trying to think. I don't think I've ever ridden a tubular tyre. Unless it was on a, a hire bike, a track bike somewhere. But no, I've, mm. I've only ever had um, clinchers. And latterly, on my gravel bike, I've got tubeless. But mm. no, I, I, I mainly ride a, a, what was a kind of pretty traditional uh, steel-framed road bike um, with, with rim brakes and you know every, everything tried and tested and uh it's it's a it's a you know it's, it's a new frame and it's stainless steel and it's it's uh it's it's pretty advanced in a lot of ways but but that's my main ride and then i yeah i do have a gravel bike so that's that's tubeless and that has squirted uh gunk on me or <laughs> uh, in, in, uh difficult situations when i would have preferred to put make well when i've had to put a tube in and um and, and deal with it like that it's so far out in the wilderness that there's nothing else to do but um so, so is any one of us on this podcast is is a is a tubular fan because I, I i'm 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 with you there max i'm i'm not riding tubes uh, they're a royal pain so there's no there's no in mm. many ways they're they're indefensible I, it's funny i don't i i don't know when um 
high-end clinches came in in the USA because working on this Yobst Brandt book has, has um, you know, it, it, when he was writing right the way through the 60s and the 70s, he would be taking his, his road bike uh, out onto the dirt roads of the Santa Cruz Mountains with tubular tires and and then every Wednesday they'd have they'd call them patching parties. So everyone would come <laughs> out, 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 out. and they'd have a they'd have like an assembly line of people doing jobs because to to mend their tubular tires because obviously to, uh, you know you're pretty likely to get flats if you take a, a road bike out onto a you know, dirt or gravel or rocky rocky road. But but I think the Rough Stuff Fellowship who also like to take their bikes unsuitable places they always look to be riding um to be riding uh clinches with within the tube so maybe it was just the hot kind of higher end of of clinches that didn't come through in the states or maybe they're just a different culture yeah i think it was really higher end clinchers that didn't show up until about 2003 2004 to be honest i mean anything that one would want to to race on i mean i remember it being very late for higher end clinchers and it used to be a situation where yeah, train on clinchers, race on tubulars was sort of the the go to through. I'd say about like man, like two thousand four, two thousand five. I, I date it pretty late. Um, so so James, I want to I want to drag us back to to your book, and I want to drag us back to um, philosophy, even. But I want to start. I mean, because because there is. I mean, I, I absolutely want to get into and the, the, there is depression in your book. There's suicides in your family, in your book. And I absolutely don't want to, 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 to not talk about them because they're important parts of your book. But I'd like to talk about something that I, I don't even, even know how much you're paying attention to this. But as a former pro, I'm guessing you must have a, 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 at least a, a, a thought on this. So you talk about the Lance Armstrong era in your book, obviously, and, and, and the doping parts of it. But that that era, you know, famously, and, and you described the Moser uh, the hour record where you almost like uh, date the, the 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 how technology took over cycling. You date it from like the the Moser um, hour uh, successful rec- uh, beating the Merckx record. But the Lance Armstrong era is when when I think when most people recognise uh, that really has come to its its absolute peak. When I mean, it's very regimented, it's fixated on equipment. There's 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 doping omatas. Uh, there's mar- all these sorts of marginal gains, you know, with which again with the the, the Sky team uh, took to it, it, it. But we're now in the era, a different era. We're in the era of Pogachar, who's a throwback to Merck's that riding on gut instinct and pain and strength you know the the blood and guts kind of riding that maybe you grew up on because you in your book you describe it about how much you, you you grew up on that kind of European fantasy of of 1950s uh cycling so and I'm now going to bring into the into the, the the philosophical realm so my question is is Pogacar if you are paying attention to to his feats right now, which are just super super dominant, so is he an example of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, not the Superman, as you you quite rightly point out in your book, but the, the Overman? That there's certainly athletes that fall into the category. Um, I've I, I think that as I've moved away from sport, I've become a little bit more measured in terms of an athlete's ability to fully sort of fulfill uh, Nietzsche's Ubermensch category. 
I think that that there has to be a, a measure of of artistry in it as well. And I think that Pogachar comes close on that front. I think that that only time will tell sort of what if if anything is is fully legitimate and and I still worry a little bit about that in the back of my mind about the sport. So I'm I'm that's why I'm a little bit guarded, but certainly his sort of style of racing I think is refreshing and absolutely good for the sport. Um, as opposed to sort of what we were talking about and what you alluded to, this sort of Sky Armstrong, not just, not merely the doping, but a- as you mentioned, a very sort of marginal gains, obsessive uh, approach to the sport that makes for, boring. yeah, very boring, boring. viewership, boring. Uh, not emotional <laughs> racing, um, mm. sort of just a game of power meters and, and attrition. So I, I think that that he's absolutely closer to this sort of Nietzschean ideal, um, but sort of given my distance to the sport, I always remain a bit a bit skeptical. And and these things take, as we've seen, not just years but sometimes decades to fully come out. Um, so I, I think the the jury is still out a little bit, to be honest. It's very. Um, it must be very difficult being being like a like a sort of mid or late career pro cyclist at the moment if you're like I, let's say you're like 28 or or 30 right because 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 there's this new generation that have just totally come and blown everything away and it's like it, they basically haven't let anyone else have a, a chance and you know Pogacar is is obviously one of them and but you know you, there's Evan Pool as well right even Tom Pidcock there's just guys that, that seem to be on a you know other level and, and the kind of training and that stuff that they do must is yeah there's a whole there's a whole group of guys of, of about a five to eight year age band that just appear to have been totally leapfrogged over i mean we went from like yeah valverde to pokitar uh, with yeah. with i i don't i don't know the math off the top of my head for birth years there but it, it there's there's a sort of a big a big I'm being a bit hyperbolic there, but a pretty big gulf in terms of, as you mentioned, Max, yeah, guys that are 28 to 34, 35, who just apparently that, that generation just didn't have the, the talent bubble that you see for for some of the younger guys. Pogacar doesn't seem to have a troubled background. So it's, it's relatively reasonably famous that, you know, the best athletes, or the, perhaps the best entrepreneurs, the best of everything – tend to have some sort of damaged family background, personal background, and that's what makes them strive. I, is that something that you recognize, James? Is that something that you, you, I, I think, yeah, I think that, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think that certainly uh, a, a sort of troubled background driving someone to succeed properly can, can sort of be spun into fuel. And, and, uh, but I think there's a razor thin line in terms of that fuel turning self-destructive. So I think that, that for some number of people, uh, it works and, and some number of successful athletes, it works at least for a given period. But then I think that there's, there's also, I recall seeing, uh, years ago and, and obviously this is extra convoluted by the matter of, of doping, but some East German studies about the psychological profiles of elite athletes uh, that, that sort of just found uh, almost the opposite, that being uh, 
calm, level-headed, uh, good family background, uh, able to deal with setbacks well, all of these sort of uh, pretty straight-laced uh, psychological profiles actually succeed as professional athletes at a higher rate than the sort of troubled characters who, who might turn uh, bad childhoods or ill psychological health into results in their given sport. So I, I think that, that, that it's a definite double-edged sword. It's an interesting one because I, I heard a guy speak recently called, um, I think he's a doctor, Dr. Lou Hardy, Professor Lou Hardy, who's a, a climber and, and uh, a, was a, became a, a top-level sports psychologist. And, and he was a part of various studies where uh, that he was work. He he made it made a distinction between um, quote unquote normal Olympians, i.e., those who just you know maybe get a, a bronze medal or maybe even a gold, but don't do it over and over again, and and the kind of multiple med- medalists, the people who, who produce and who who outstrip their own achievements year after year, and and his his conclusion was that yes, there was this kind of uh, element in in. In, in a lot of their past there's a common element of, of having a really a troubled childhood or, or some kind of you know something missing that they were trying to make up for i i think that that's an interesting distinction i think makes sense i mean you can think of, of for example uh the american swimmer michael phelps who's been very candid about some mental health struggles after his retirement um certainly fits that that category of super olympian uh so i think that 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 distinction seems super interesting to me, Max, and and spot on as you sort of run through the the laundry list um, of and James. Characters. Let's 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 let at, at that point because you, in your book you, you're very open about the depression, yeah, and uh, the mental health issues you, you you went through. So again, without wishing to to, to spoil the whole book where you talk yeah. about this, can you just summarize it? And talk about what you, you you mentioned in the book, and 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 also, it, was the book cathartic for you? So, did it actually help with yeah. your mental health? Writing it, so let's say f- f- tackle that one. Tackling that one first, I would say probably not. Um, I think that that there's this idea in terms of writing that I think perhaps writing that is not for public consumption can can mm. be cathartic. But I think that when one is writing with the idea of or the knowledge, uh, contract signed, things like this, that, that a book is going to be consumed publicly, uh, I think that there's an entirely different mindset that a writer brings to it. Uh, and you have to move away from personal, uh, perhaps indulgent catharsis to uh, sort of hopefully artistic success and something that's pleasurable for a reader. So I, it, it ended up for me definitely, unfortunately, not being cathartic. Um, but in terms of in terms of sort of general mental health and, and the way I've thought about it and approached it, um, I think that the two the two things that I've pursued very vigorously in my life have been cycling and philosophy, where I certainly had the idea that I was going to be an academic philosopher for a time, um, mm-hmm. and and I think that. Oh, both of those things in retrospect, I was trying to outrun uh, a lot of my own demons. And, and it's difficult to tell 
the extent to which those demons are situational or environmental or genetic. Uh, as you mentioned, there certainly is, is a history of depression and suicide that runs through my family. Um, and I think that, that when one is struggling with mental health, uh, everyone is familiar with, with Rene Descartes and this idea of Cartesian dualism. And you certainly run into that uh, on a minute-by-minute basis when you're really struggling with, with depression. You sort of think, well, is this owing to some genetic predisposition constitution and the way certain neurochemicals are, are being taken up in my synapses? Or is this something that, that I can think or snap my way out of? Uh, and and s- unfortunately, the snap my way out approach, as ridiculous as it sounds, uh, to any sort of person who suffered with depression or mental health, there's an odd temptation to it. And, and you can sort of think that, geez, if I just try harder, there's some way out of this thing. Um, and it's, it's a very tricky, bizarre thing to navigate. And, and I think for me that the thought was for initially, if I'm just a successful enough athlete, everything will feel better. And there's something very tempting about having depression, having anxiety, and going and riding your bike for five hours in a a difficult training session. You're just exhausted. You're no longer anxious. You're no longer depressed. So I think that that the sort of obsessive nature and the striving of of sport sort of kicked the ball of uh, my mental health challenges from that first sort of I confronted in my, my late teens kicked it much, much later. And then I sought some of those answers in the same things in philosophy, thinking that, boy, if I, if I merely understand things, things are going to, to be different in my mind and my outlook is going to be entirely changed. If I somehow grasp philosopher X, Y, Z in some fundamental way, this will shift my, my brain and hence my relationship to the world in, in a very basic way that will be beneficial. And, and the, the gist of the book is that both of those don't work well. <laughs> so, so, so you describe that very well in the book. And, and you, you've certainly got a, a background that I didn't have in that you seem to have, um, you know, conversations with your parents and your father about yeah. Heidegger from a very early age. So your, your father, you, I can't see any cycling background to the rest of your family no the philosophy comes very much from your, your 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 father so you were having deep conversations and it seems from like 10 years old uh with, with your father on, yeah. on on philosophy but is that right in saying your cycling is a disconnect with your family but of course the philosophy has come from your father yeah there's more definitely more familial continuity with philosophy um my father studied philosophy under a, a relatively renowned Heidegger scholar in in the sixties, who who came from Germany at Stanford, um, mm. so very much a familial connection to to particularly German philosophy through my father, and and generally the fact that he was around the sort of Bay Area nineteen sixties counterculture, um, where this sort of whole idea of um, not just philosophy but philosophy changing your mind and changing your perceptions, right? This sort of Ken Kesey, Timothy Leary guided um, ideal of what thinking could do. 
and and that reality that's, that's drugs is, as well yeah not not just not, not just, just thinking, thinking but yeah absolutely LSD. yes bound up with with mm. uh, with psychedelic drugs and, and psychedelia the, the, yeah but uh, sort of what i was exposed to was a sort of i suppose highbrow psychedelia um where where uh yes certainly like drugs were discussed but sort of in service of reality not being what it appears on the face of it. And and in retrospect, I'm not sure how useful this is to convey to to kids, to be honest. Um, But you've come from a milieu which discussed drugs. I'm not saying you you, you took uh, LSD or your family took LSD, and then you went into a, a sport that was famously certainly in, in the era that you were in and you, I mean, we discussed it you yeah. know that uh, you, you've certainly discussed that frequently and not just in your own book but in yeah. you know, forward to other books right uh, the paul kimmage book for right. instance um so there's there's drugs have suffused both parts of your world potentially and, and you haven't partaken of either uh that's funny i've never really connected the two to be honest um i've always thought of I guess just performance enhancing drugs, just being on a different planet than than sort of anything psychedelic. Drug mind wise. mind enhancing drugs. Yeah. Uh, so one is body perhaps. enhancing, and the other <laughs> yeah. one is, is mind enhancing. Yeah, I just I honestly call it never really thought of them in the in, in the same sentence. Um, and and yeah, to be candid, to be candid, like while I was a teenager, um, I did with a good high school friend. Uh, took psilocybin and thought it was very interesting, thought that it was nothing I needed to return to continually. It was not uh, the, I, I don't know if you're familiar, I mentioned Alan Watts, a sort of uh, English popularizer of Zen, who had a, a longstanding barrier radio program. He sort of, he, he, there's a quote from him that I always remember when it comes to psychedelic drugs, which was, you know, once you get the phone call, you hang up, you sort of have this experience, you realize that that reality is not constituted as the way your your teachers and your mentors and your parents and and um, the sort of local Lions Club would how do you believe and then you take that information and live differently and hopefully better in a more sincere way than than everyone going to a nine to five job. And that was the sort of message that that I received not only growing up, but also was was the one that permeated the cycling culture that I found. I, I think that's really interesting because because I think that the sense that you get, at least partly in the in the US, is that cycling is a is a kind of rebellion, isn't it? It's kind of against the against the car culture, and and it, it was a very much a subculture for a long time. And and from what I've read and people I've spoken to, you know, Northern California was you know a kind of hotbed of of cycling and in a in a country that didn't much care about it for for a long 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 time um but i you know i went to palo alto which is not far away from where you are yeah last year to to talk to the guys and and just this it's kind of like magical and and you got these amazing mountains and it's beautiful and like like we've saying the the sun shines most of the time and then you got these you know you've got the kind of rebels of of cycling you've got the gary fishers and the and the tom riches and joe breezes and and charlie cunningham's the guys who who you know invented a new thing and and had like kind of amazing attitude and that comes through in your that part of california in so many different ways but i was why do you think cycling and and um 
and you know your part of california and it has been such a fruitful kind of thing well i think first of all i think it's very much changed i mean i think that 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 sort of counterculture was allowed to flourish before google and apple and and sort of the the financial pressures have come to dominate the the bay area and the santa clara valley and palo alto now to such an extent that i think that sort of counterculture is is really being greatly squelched um so i think that was first of all a sort of cultural snapshot moment from say the 50s through perhaps the early 90s if you're being generous um but I think that, that the reason that that, that that confluence of factors allowed for cycling to be this sort of counterculture thing was, first of all, the, the number of universities that are, are very close proximity. Uh, there's Stanford University, obviously, in, in Palo Alto, um, University of California at Santa Cruz, UC Berkeley, San Jose State. So there's a, a huge clustering of, of universities and the sort of energy that comes from young people and universities and the counterculture. Um, and I think that, that going back to, to psychedelic drugs, um, there were even a lot of, of government experiments about the usages of uh, the usage of LSD for uh, more nefarious purposes. Those were done at the Palo Alto VA. People like Ken Kesey were, were very famously involved in some of those experiments. Um, so going back to colleges, uh, I don't know if, if this is the case in the UK, but uh, uh, almost all psych experiments throughout the 20th, 21st century were done on college undergraduates, including psychedelic drugs by the US government. So I think that, that that's uh, an interesting compounding historical factor that that drove some of this. And there's it, it, interestingly, the, 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 yes, Max, the absolutely the, the the amazing cycling culture of of uh, the Bay Area um, is it, is just yes, it's it, it's amazing. But you've also got uh, almost a, a, a counter to that in that Palo Alto is the home of vehicular cycling. So John Forrester, that's where he was was nabbed for cycling on the, the, the sidewalk at one point, which then leads to a huge movement of, you know, rejecting bike paths, you know, for, for a, a good time in America. And, and, and you could almost argue that uh, America or that, that part of America has given, yes, a mountain biking and, and, and counterculture cycling, but it's also given you... Uh, 20, 30 years of not going down the Dutch route and not asking for, for bike paths because of a, 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 a policeman pulling over a cyclist, John Forrester, in Palo Alto. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And, and, and it, I'm, not, I'm not surprised, though, in, in a lot of ways because I do think that what's, what's difficult to pin down I suppose about any complex intellectual problem or, or cultural area, but uh, the number of sort of competing threads and weird enigmatic things where you try and sort of pin something down as being a bike friendly hub. And then you have an example like that um, sort of pushing all against it. And, and I think that, that those sort of enigmas are, are throughout the, the Bay area's DNA in a lot of ways. I guess because you've got yeah you've got both pro and con there at the same time because it's such a, a, a rabid 
bicycling culture. You're going to get both sides of it. And at this at this juncture, I would like to cut for an ad break. So I'm going to go across to my colleague, David, who also happens to be in America. Hello, everyone. This is David from the Fredcast and, of course, the Spokesman. And I'm here once again to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn build bikes that make it easier for you to replace car trips with bike trips. Part of that is being committed to designing useful bikes that are also fun to ride. But an even greater priority for Turn is to make sure that your ride is safe and worry-free. And that's why Turn works with industry-leading third-party testing labs like EFBE and builds its bikes around Bosch e-bike systems, which are UL certified for both electric and fire safety. So before you even zip off on your turn, fully loaded and perhaps with a loved one behind, you can be sure that the bike has been tested to handle the extra stresses on the frame and the rigors of the road. For more information, visit www.turnbicycles.com to learn more. And now back to the spokesman. And and we are back. Uh, thanks, uh, David. We are back with uh, James Hibbert, uh, author of a, a philosophy book, a cycling book, uh, a, a book about a nice trip with his mates, going to uh, uh, almost credit card touring. Because you sent your 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 stuff ahead, didn't you? You you, you didn't carry um, uh, stuff on your your bikes. You you, you sent stuff ahead. Uh, James, and we are also with Max Leonard, who, as we heard in the intro, is a, an author of, of a, a goodly number of fantastic books on on a wide range of very Catholic uh, interests. You've got there <laughs> on, on, on cycling. I can't even think of a thread that pulls them all together. J- James, I, I want to because we're talking about your book is is, is a philosophy book. Uh, Nietzsche is probably one of the philosophers that maybe cyclists if not understand mm-hmm. the most certainly quote the most because you know that that quote the famous quote you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger well that's that's a Nietzsche quote to link it to Max Nietzsche of course also loved suffering in the high mountains so that the, there's the, that kind of link but Nietzsche was also appropriated by the Nazis so it's not his fault but he was appropriated by the Nazis so maybe he's not the best fella uh, for for cyclists to follow after all, I, I, give 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 the the, the maybe the, the positive sides of Nietzsche and why we should uh, discuss Nietzsche. So I think the positive sides of Nietzsche are immense. Um, I, I, I think that that his Nazi appropriation was uh, very unfortunate, and he's someone who's easily appropriated owing to his style. Um, you sort of thumb through Nietzsche and you can, you find some examples certainly of his anti anti-Semitism and in fact, his concerns about, uh, Germans in Germany. So Nietzsche is an interesting character on that front, but where, where I think Nietzsche is truly fascinating is when you look through the, the history and the sort of thrust of 2,500 years of Western philosophy, it's increasingly from Plato on, driven by this idea of abstraction. So you walk into any sort of intro to philosophy class, and when Plato or Platonism uh, is explained, it's essentially like, hey, you can have a, a table, this table here in front of us, the professor knocks on and touches, 
is going to eventually rot and decay and go back ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But the idea of a table uh, is uh, solid and everlasting and immutable and beautiful in a way that any actual table uh, never is. So you, you end up with ideas and concepts being more important and in some ways more quote-unquote real than an actual table. And, and I think what's very interesting is this has allowed for tremendous success and scientific progress um, because you're dealing with, with concepts. But implicit in that is also a sort of uh, denial of uh, things that are, that are nearest, tangible, actual things, actual tables made of wood in front of you. And you can see this same sort of, of tendency, certainly in Silicon Valley, uh, so I think that, that this idea that philosophy doesn't matter or some uh, silly, useless discipline is is just on the face of it not true. You can see that that, that idea is in fact uh, massively important to this day. This idea of the abstract and and intangible mattering more than the tangible. So where Nietzsche comes into this is Nietzsche diagnoses this right at the at the. Uh, end of the 19th, uh, Nietzsche, just to orient everyone who might not be, be sort of familiar, Nietzsche dies in very symbolically in the year 1900. So Nietzsche sort of sees uh, the end of, uh, famously not only declares God dead, this sort of Judeo-Christian true belief in, in God, but also senses that this Platonic Christian uh, denying of the world and of bodies is is an incredibly dangerous tactic, uh, and in fact, one that is the hallmark of of modernity. So, I think that that Nietzsche is interesting for for a number of reasons, but that is really the the crux of of where I wanted to engage Nietzsche this this desire to what he to do what he calls overcome metaphysics overcome this idea to that that the abstract matters more than the tangible so so cycling is is tied in here in as much as it's clearly a very tangible thing to do and and uh a very nietzschean thing to do in as much as it demands presence uh it demands uh tangible visceral engagement rather than an abstract one do you not get on a bike because he would have liked bikes, wouldn't he? I mean, if he died in nineteen hundred, how old did he? Was he, he died about? He died. 70? He died relatively young and was uh, in a in a sanitarium. Uh, he famously debated what what took place with him, but he spent the last the last decade of his life in a sanitarium under the essential conservatorship of his sister Elizabeth. So I'm just I'm just trying to roughly work out that he must have been he he certainly saw I, I'm sure he saw early bicycles, but I don't think there's any evidence that he actually ever rode one. Um, his his because it had been right at the right time to be you know been thirty years old yeah roughly yeah no it, when it, when bicycles first came on the scene so he he could, he would have been right for getting on one of these he would have just surprised he hasn't he was in Ill, Ill health he had poor eyesight he had poor digestion um, so uh, I think that's the other interesting thing autobiographically about Nietzsche is that for all of his talk about sort of virility and physical strength uh, he was 
in fact, a, a relatively sickly individual from, from the time he was a professor. Uh, and that's why he left his professorship, in fact, uh, was just poor physical health. Sort of going from from one spot in southern Europe to another, sort of looking for uh, better air or general recuperation. Mountain air, exactly. He was a big aficionado of the mountains, wasn't he? And 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 a big walker. I think. I think he was very much embodied in that sense. Is that he? You know, walking and thinking were quite well. Uh, were interconnected for him walking thinking hiking all all of that so so certainly yes fresh air physical alpine physicality were were it's all sprinkled throughout his writings there's also the kind of i i didn't know much about nietzsche before i read james's book but you know he's a kind of easy caricature as well and, and there's a very cycling sort of element to it like I'm just I'm thinking about Henry de Grange, the guy who started the Tour de France, and this idea of of you know surpassing yourself and going beyond your abilities, and and that the Tour de France, the first Tour de the ideal race, uh, is something often quoted by Henry de Grange. Which I've never found the actual quote, so it could just be apocryphal. But uh, the, the perfect Tour de France would be one where only one guy. Uh, crosses the finish line you know that it's stripped away everyone else and everyone else has fallen by the wayside and and you know expired because they're they're not strong enough and this this one sort of uh, ubermensch guy is gonna is gonna win and, and i think it's obviously kind of caricaturing and, and you know using the the perception of nietzsche that without actually you know, knowing much about him but i think it's it's all quite uh feels quite relevant and close doesn't it to a certain attitude inside no i think it certainly does and i think that that it's funny i mean the from the tour de france to six day racing to sort of i've heard about you know dance contests that go on for 72 hours straight or something it seemed like like it was in the air in that era this sort of whole uh going to one's absolute physical limit physical exhaustion uh, these sort of feats of endurance. Um, and, and yeah, I couldn't agree more, Max, in terms of them being uh, very sort of self-overcoming Nietzschean. And I, and I think that's what's key to understanding Nietzsche. I think it's easy to read Nietzsche poorly and sort of think that it's this sort of outward uh, process of winning or beating other people or succeeding as a capitalist or something something awful like that but for Nietzsche it's very artistic and very self-overcoming as opposed to uh beating out a system and then you mentioned in your book uh, James about the style and how style was important to, to, to Nietzsche. Maybe, maybe just define what he meant by style. So I think that, that what he means by style is very much what we're talking about in terms of not just doing something on a sort of external basis, not merely succeeding, not merely looking at your, your power meter and winning L'Arpe d'Huez, but rather uh, attacking with 1K to go doggedly after having been dropped and then winning. Right, it's 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 sort of how something is done that matters to him, because you're taking your own will and imposing it upon yourself. So I I think that in, that's in cycling, really the key. Though, isn't there like a 
sorry, isn't there like a, a quite a, a, and you just describe this in the book as well. There's a, there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, underdog stuff in cycling. And the person who comes second is actually more important, right. and more famous and, and, and more lauded in cycling than the person who comes first by pure, uh, you know, skill. Yeah, it, it's the one who, who strive and, and fail. Right. So the, the failure is, is quite a big thing in cycling. Well, I think that, that Mass can speak to this too uh, from from his first Lantern Rouge book in as much as I think that there's there's something very French too about that, about not, not respecting, uh, not being obsessed with just the winner, but the, the sort of perennial second place even the the final finisher in the Tour de France, and sort of really respecting that, and and I think that there's something uh, that perhaps Max can even speak to that is very intrinsic to French culture and French racing cycling culture around that. I mean, it seems like there's a perennial uh, Tour de France contender who never quite succeeds, who's always French. Um, so I think there's something culturally to that. That's that's funny. I I hadn't thought of that, but I, I think I can see. I think you're right. And you know, the the most recent example would be Thibaut Pinot, and, and well, and the, the poor guy was never really given a chance. He's, he he was so over. It's it's such such a passion there, you know. And, and a French cycling style gets so much energy. Uh, well exposure and and pressure heaped upon them i think and and you you're right for every um for every jacques Anquetil, there's there's a raymond poulidor who's the eternal second who's coming along behind him and I, the, as for the lantern rouge it, it i don't know how that how it really happened it, it i think it was a sort of spontaneous i think uh, the underdog feeling is is pretty is British as well. I think we'd go for the underdog, whereas uh, in in the in the US, I think might be sort of more straightforwardly rooting for for the winner. But but in Britain, we like the underdog. And France, uh, the Lantern Rouge definitely came about in the first ten years of the tour, so it, it happened pretty quickly. It was it was pretty much there before World War One, as far as I can tell. Though I haven't found the first uh, reference to it in print. But it's, the, the French public really took it took it to heart, and they, you know, they would make a, a, a red lantern and give it to the rider for the last stage into Paris, and they'd carry it, or they'd carry it along, or his teammates would hang it over his head. So was it was it always proudly from from the from the get go? So it wasn't a, like a shame, mark of shame. It was I'm carrying this proudly. Was that early? No, uh, it, from it, it it seems so, and and then sort of post second world war you'd get um w- with the kind of explosion in not just cycling media but all media you know with with uh, the with the kind of miroir sprint and those kind of picture magazines and then the radio and then tv with with the media and with the sponsorship that came in uh the last guy it would would become quite famous and he'd get invited to all the post tour criteriums so you know these and we're talking about a time when you know the the domestique the the team riders would be making really really terrible money uh compared with the the champions or or even with a you know anyone else and so 
they'd get to earn, you know, maybe their whole year's salary in, in a mm. couple of weeks after the tour or, you know, or more than that. So, so it became very attractive and it became, it became, uh, I don't think, I don't think there was a, uh, you know, completely positive feelings about it ever. And definitely people have felt ashamed to come last, but, but, you know, on the other hand, let's say you've got a guy who, who, I'm thinking in 1993, a guy, a guy called Jackie Durand, who won the Tour of Flanders uh, in a, an incredibly long break, which that was his his ma- major achievement in his career. But then he, he be- became Lantern Rouge in 1993 um, after a terrible, terrible crash in, I think it was stage three, and was you know, fighting along injured. And it became became a matter of pride that he stayed in the race and um you know pushed on to the end and actually he he was a sort of very mercurial character always attacking and he got the the uh, competitivity prize as well so uh, in that particular year the lantern rouge the last guy in the race got to stand on the podium at the champs-elysees alongside um none other than lance armstrong yeah i i, I think it's in for the french public as well i think the, the french you know, proletariat always had a, you know, stick one up at the government or the, you know, the rule, the, the authorities, that kind of thing. So I think there might be an element of that in it too. Um, well, and I do think it's interesting. I think you hit the nail on the head, Max, in terms of, of American culture as opposed to either British or French culture on this front. And I mean, we sort of keep, we keep dancing around it to some degree. But I think that what's what's very interesting is the way the sport changed not just in the bay area uh but just sort of demographically in a post armstrong era i mean the sport went from what we're talking about uh sort of in northern california to being the sort of from being this sort of counterculture exercise to i've heard cycling described as the new golf uh amongst like mm-hmm. venture capitalists in in palo alto and things like that so i think it, it very much changed and i think there was a particular cultural moment that was far larger than cycling that you can sort of put the Armstrong era under the, the heading of, right. You sort of, I think now with a little bit of distance, we can think and reflect back about uh, not just someone like Armstrong, but a general, let's say from, you know, the late nineties through arbitrarily here or something like 2005, 2010, this sort of, Nike driven, win at all cost, Bernie Madoff type uh, cultural moment that was perhaps American led, but certainly global. And, and I think that that's an interesting way to start to think about the Armstrong era uh, in a in a perspective that transcends cycling. Because in your book, uh, James, you you mentioned that that the the biggest insult you could say to an American is that you're a loser. Absolutely. That's that's like, and that brings like the Trump things, you know, when when he says, you know, you're a loser. That, that that's where that's coming from. That it's, it's a very loaded term. Whereas what we we're discussing before about you, you can be the loser, you can be the lantern rouge in a, in a European perspective, and right. that's that's absolutely fine. And there's 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 lots of examples of you know heroic failures of being you know lauded. Whereas you're saying in the American culture, it, it's it's winner takes all. That's it. Yeah. No, I I think that that is absolutely correct and and very insightful to even invoke trump in this instance and i think that yes the sort of 
American game of winner take all capitalism uh, was applied to the sport of cycling with the U.S. Postal Service team to disastrous results. Um, and, and I think that when you do a little bit of digging about who the backers of that team were, uh, it also becomes very apparent. I mean, they're they're American finance billionaires. So I think that there's a very particular American, we are going to win by whatever means necessary ethos that was applied to the sport of cycling for the first time. And sure enough, a lot of Tour de France's were won in scare quotes. Um, but I think that, that that particular moment obviously was very damaging to the sport and, and very, ma- very damaging culturally and i think we're still sort of backing our way out of that uh in a lot of regards but as we mentioned before that like the, the pocket child thing is or that the era is is cleaning that yeah is is almost making that just a bad memory right you know we we have a mercs we have a mercs of today right uh doing superhuman stuff nietzschean stuff uh but without the drugs without the marginal gains it almost seems as though you could be on any bike right who, who cares what bike right. on? you know they, who cares where they they wash their duvets right or, or they you know they take their their, their chef, their chef <laughs> right he right. probably doesn't need that you know he, he doesn't need pogachar is just a superhuman he's just uh, an uberman right yeah no and and i think that that that's absolutely great for the sport that that's that that's the case mm. and and you're right that he's he's uh on a Colnago and not there's not some huge push in terms of this is the the newest greatest lightest bike it's I, I think that's nothing but good in an era where super bikes are now costing 10 or twelve thousand dollars I mean it, it's great in the book you do you do make the point that you're you're on the cusp of this era where people were still riding um, bikes that were custom built for them. And then you came in, and, and your, 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 the ride that you did with your mates across California was on on your last bike, uh, which was carbon. Uh, but, but you you kind of you remembered the days of steel, and 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 maybe even experimenting with certain materials. But then carbon comes in, and how how much do you think carbon has killed the aesthetics the the feel of the road the, all of that kind of romantic stuff that you talk about in your book but carbon potentially has killed a lot of that and it, it's just a mass-produced chinese product I, I think it has to some extent i think it's kind of unfortunate i mean i remember just images of ernesto canago's shop or you know, consulting with Merck's about the hour record bike and things that were just beautiful where a bicycle frame was a bespoke individual uh, sort of thing rather than merely a commodity. Um, Sort of put in context, uh, I turned professional with a team called Shackley in 2000. And uh, as soon as the, the ink was dry on the contract in the fall, we sent our measurements for custom steel frame sets. Um, we had aluminum frames for the road or for the track, which were also custom, but I think that was about really near the end of that. Uh, and, and probably one of the last professional squads to be on, uh, handmade Italian steel frames and rebadged as American, rebadged, rebadged as American, but Italian made. Um, and I think that, that obviously you can't get away with that with carbon frames any longer. Um, and yeah, just as you say, the fact that sort of they've become a, a bicycle frame has gone from this sort of 
magical thing that is that is made by a particular builder for a particular rider to uh, a commodity it's unfortunate but i think it's also difficult to claim that a steel bike is objectively better from any performance metric um perhaps you can make an argument about the way it it resonates over the road and things like that certainly durability um but if you're looking to to win win a stand on this Are are you a carbon guy are you a old school steel guy what are you where do you sit on the spectrum i i have i have owned i've owned bikes in in most most common materials i was just started thinking about bamboo and things like that i haven't <laughs> had a bamboo bike <laughs> uh, aluminium steel carbon and uh, i've i've enjoyed them all i i now have two three beautiful steel handmade frames and i think the aesthetics of it is uh, it, it will always something will always look right to me about a, a steel f- uh, road frame with with a horizontal top tube um i'm lucky that i think the bikes in my size are, are, the, are the best looking uh bikes i think the, <laughs> the proportions of the head tube and that kind of thing are all all right but um one of my bikes actually made made by a company called stinner in santa barbara um so yes i know i know stinner frames well yes those are beautiful yeah it's it's a beautiful bike but but i didn't get to go and and see see them and and talk to them about it in person but but with my feather which is my road bike that was made up by ricky feather in yorkshire Mm -hmm. and to be able to go and and chat with someone and see the workshop and you know actually it the it's a 54 centimeter square frame it's in some ways it's it's not remarkable but that i was there from the start and we talked over everything and, and he, you know he considered everything and took in the input and thought about the angles and materials and uh you know little, tiny little custom bespoke things that, that he wanted to do it, that that's what what makes it and it's made it special and and i just realized actually um talking to some guys about it, realized that that bike now is 10 years old, which is incredible. And it still feels just as good and fast. Mm. And I I love riding still just as much. And my carbon bike, I I never had the same connection to it. It was objectively, it was a faster and lighter and all of those kind of things. But, um, but it just didn't feel, feel the same emotionally. So steel is real. So this, this obsessing over equipment and this, this is also, in in your your book uh james because you 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 talk about you know uh, the feeling of the 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 sizing have got to be has got to be right in like the the kind of the mercs right you know every millimeter has got to count on on your bike and you 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 clearly were obsessive and you 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 talk about how obsessive you were yeah at all of the equipment choices uh you were making your time now that because you mentioned before about cycling being the new golf well golf also attracts that kind of um feeling you know people are you know choosing the the right golf line. i don't know what the description of what these things are called but anyway the right kind of you know golf bits that you hit the white ball with you know going the right kind of thing <laughs> it, it, it also attracts the same kind of obsession uh with it with equipment but that that also attracts oddballs outsiders and outliers so so both golf and cycling attracts those kind of people is, is that fair to say? I, I, fair to all, fair cyclists, to all cyclists. 
Yeah, I think that no, I think that's it's an apt comparison, and and I don't. I look. I've increasingly sort of as I've gotten older, come to appreciate the sport of golf. So I don't want to sort of poo poo <laughs> on it by any means. But I think the reason that I sort of invoked golf there was the fact that I think that there's there's some socioeconomic things at play where I think that that certainly I would not have become a bike racer uh, as a junior if uh, a sort of entry-level bike that I could race a local cri- Cat 4 criterium, junior criterium on cost $4,000. It just simply mm. wouldn't have happened, and, and I was outgrowing them every six or eight months. So I think that from a, a sheer sort of who is going to be included and, and brought to the table of uh, development uh, as a young junior, uh, I, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about the the bicycle as eight or ten thousand dollar commodity, um, and and the the sort of club system in the United States where you would get a hand me down bike that all has sort of languished and been been superseded by coaches and and everything has to be paid for. So I think that that when we're talking about equipment, talking about elite development and and anything else, the sort of question of demography and inclusion looms large. Um, and, and I just want to make certain that it doesn't become a sport for the elite. And I don't think that cycling has ever been uh, uh, traditionally a sort of elitist sport. It's been a European sort of working class sport. Uh, so, so, you'd be, so you'd be in favor then of the UCI bringing in all the regulations to stop technology well i I think whatever happens at the elite level that's an even enough playing field i think at the at the pro level everyone's being given bikes by suppliers that's not a problem i mean i'm concerned about the about the 11 or 12 year old whose parents saunter into a bike shop uh looking for something that's that's uh, or even looking at the used market for something that's a capable bike and it's just cost prohibitive so I think that that's, that's where this conversation about equipment, really where the proverbial rubber meets the road. And, and I worry a little bit about some of those costs and, and bicycles as expensive, merely expensive commodities. So, so let, let me bring it back a little bit to um, philosophy and, and, and cycling at the same time. And I'm just going to quote you something yeah. from your book there, James. So th- this is a quote from you. Uh, cycling is at once profoundly social and intensely and intensely attractive to loners and outsiders so that's what we talked about before anyway so this sense of alienation of feeling cut off not just from one true one's true self but from society pulses through the very veins of existentialism so why does it pulse through the veins why is cycling uh, can, can cycling be likened to that so I think that let's go back to like a. Uh, I'll give you a, a sort of personal story to sort of illustrate this. I remember being like many people were at this age. I, I don't know what it's called in the UK, but in in what we call in the United States, middle school. So I think I was maybe twelve or thirteen years old uh, in in seventh or eighth grade. And I remember uh, we were sort of on, and I described this in the book, but the school I attended, there's a sort of like elevated area uh, with basketball courts and a chain link fence, which in retrospect looked rather almost prison yard like. Uh, And and I thought the whole thing was kind of 
kind of stupid. We had to do stupid things that I thought were either inane or, or boring or both. And uh, we were positioned, though, from this vantage point above a relatively large boulevard that connected uh, San Jose and Morgan Hill. And I remember seeing uh, a pack of cyclists behind their team car uh, on, I don't know, it must have been 11 on a weekday. And not just being attracted to it, but being attracted to the fact that they seemed far freer than, than my life. It was a weekday. They weren't stuck in commute traffic. They weren't uh, going to algebra class. They were on their bicycles going 35 miles an hour behind a team car. And that struck me as uh, just the absolute epitome of freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. And looping it back to philosophy, existentialism too, uh, and just to sort of bring listeners up to speed, existentialism is a, a predominantly uh, French, but also German, essentially post-war philosophical movement that's very concerned with human agency and freedom and questions of meaning. Sort of in the, in the wake of the Second World War, uh, how do we create meaning in this after this, I don't know, what can only be described as uh, moral uh, atrocity for humanity? How do you sort of go on in the wake of every cultural norm being shattered in the face of that? Uh, and, and sort of people like Jean-Paul Sartre say that it's in our absolute freedom. Uh, so there's a, a clear sort of through line for the freedom that, that's sort of being described by the existentialists, um, the, the freedom that I saw in the sport of cycling, and the freedom that I think is a very um, particularly, probably, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but particularly American sort of counterculture idea, this sort of uh, wet old west hyper freedom uh reality is what you make it idea all of those sort of things were swirling in my head and i think uh brought me to the sport of cycling for for that reason james you, you talk about freedom and 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 in the beginning of the book you talk about um when you first got on a bike it was like flying yeah, right. so that's a very very common that's a very common uh way of describing cycling right. uh, so that that freedom is is uh, is obvious when you're going down you know a sinewy uh beautiful um, road ride in in your neck of the woods yeah. in in northern California, but that that uh, team car yeah. and bunch of riders behind being you 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 equated that to freedom. Yeah. When you read your book, the, the, the description of your uh, youthful um, cycling experiences, where you, you brought in the Olympic program and all that kind right. of stuff. It, it, describe it, it, talk to me or oh, like monks you, yeah you were in a cult you 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 were not free you were very much going along in a prescribed program right following you know a, a biblical text in effect yeah uh you know the the, the, the coney manual which you mentioned right. uh it was a religious experience you, you were you were a monk if you described your 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 ascetic lifestyle you know, and you took away the bike. That is basically a, 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 a Zen monk. You, you, you were just doing stuff that a religious order would do. No, you're, where, that's, so where is the that's very astute in in that that team car? Well, I think what's interesting about that is in the difficulty with with the the American concept of freedom writ large is freedom to do what you sort of freedom is this sort of openness, and then the question quickly becomes. Uh, 
oh shit, what do I do now? What do I do with this newfound openness? And, and unfortunately, the responses are, are far more, and you see this throughout uh, existentialist-informed fiction and film, the responses are far more difficult uh, to, to sort of formulate anything coherent on the other side of that freedom than the sort of, the bristling against it is the, is the easy part. So as you say, yeah, I think I was able to uh, escape the sort of restrictions of uh, being an adolescent and attending school. I was able to uh, move to the Olympic Training Center. Uh, and, and to me, that felt like uh, that exit from the life of my peers felt like freedom. But in fact, it was far less free probably than, than what my peers were doing at the time. <laughs> Uh, it was very mm. attrition based. It sounds like prison. It was. It, I think the models that were imposed at the time by the Cycling Federation were very Eastern Bloc. It was essentially let's mm. let's put several hundred uh, junior talent identified through competition or physiological testing or whatever else put them into a proverbial meat grinder, and at the end of this, we will have one world champion. Um, and, and at the junior and U23 level, there, there were some world champions that came out of, of that melu. Um, but unfortunately, there were a lot of, also a lot of other rather talented athletes that, that washed out of that system. Um, looking back mm-hmm. now, it's just, I, I was essentially like uh, an endurance track rider who could, who could ride a, a kilometer or team pursuit. So relatively short events. And looking back now at, at training logs and things that I kept, uh, there were times where I was literally doing 35 hours a week on a bike, plus strength training, plus additional ergometer workouts. So it was just, it was absolutely crazy by today's standards. Um, and like I say, very <laughs> attrition-based, staring at rollers, and we were not to drop below 90 RPM or, or the, the coach would admonish us. It was... Uh, lots of going so hard, I threw up and collapsing in the shower after rides and just wondering how I was possibly going to do the next day of training. So are you still cycling? Uh, very little, very little. Um, I've got, got a young son. Um, I've had problems with my eyesight. So, and, and some corneal transplants. So I basically have, have, uh, just taken to running and, and the occasional day on the trainer. So not a whole lot, to be honest. Because your family is clearly important to you. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in the book, you mentioned your wife, you mentioned uh, Graham, your child, yeah. uh, uh, frequently. They, they've clearly grounded you and have, 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 have suffused your life with something above and beyond the kind of the meaning that you were maybe trying to get by being a competitive uh, uh, cyclist. Absolutely. I think that... that- for me, the, the entire sort of trajectory of the book is back to not just the tangible, but back to being capable of loving things in the tangible world without fear. I think there's a lot of people that sort of escape uh, escape the realities and the impermanence of the world through either trying to achieve things or through uh, desiring things that stand outside of space and time and are thus safe. 
And I think that the, the sort of confidence to love and return to the world uh, is really the, the primary thread that, that I hope to convey in the book. And I think, frankly, the, the only, for me at least, the only conceivable way forward. Mm. Now, the, the, the note that I made uh, when I was reading your book, uh, uh, and I, 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 of course I'm plagiarizing here, is I cycle, therefore I am um because that's what it comes yeah. across as it's like cycling is um it certainly was for that part of your life something that defined you but you're not saying you're not you're no longer so cycling no longer defines you no and i think that i think it's very easy to for young athletes to be defined by their sport i mean you sort of think of the incredible sort of feedback that one gets as a, as a young athlete in almost any sort of town in America. I mean, I remember uh, being on the cover of the local paper when you're 14, 15, and you just sort of assume this identity. And it's this sort of shorthand identity that is uh, sufficient and you're recognized for it and everything feels good in a very uh, superficial, if straightforward way. And I think that a lot of the mental health challenges that, that sort of athletes confront after they're done with their sport is shedding that identity uh, because it's, it becomes so baked in and, and sort of coming up with a new identity away from your sport is uh, not an easy process. So when you're on that TV program, the, the Oprah Winfrey style TV program of Trinidad and, and Tobago. Yep. And you were described as an American cyclist. And you got this big kick yep. at being called an American cyclist. It, it defined, what are you now? If you were, if you were on the, you know, the, the program today, how would you describe yourself? I'd hope to be not easily defined other than by my relationships with the people that I'm closest to and care about. I think that sort of the the monikers like that, and this is perhaps where I show show some of my cards, I suppose, politically or economically or something. But I think that that sort of monikers like that that are easy to categorize are sort of always end up being reductive and dangerous and work real well if you're trying to sell yourself as an identity. Uh, in a sort of hyper-capitalist system. But I think that, that they're dangerous and, and dehumanizing. So I think that perhaps a writer I'm a little bit more comfortable with, but beyond that, I think that, that it's, it's dangerous territory. It's, it's tough, isn't it? I think that you know you can invest and and uh, you know i did and do and lots of people do you can invest so much in the idea of being a cyclist with inverted commas right but then that can get that can get taken away from you in so many ways like you know if you're a pro then then your career may you know come come to an end i i had a you know a pretty like long-term injury that meant i didn't ride my bike for right. hours and, and so suddenly okay i'm not a cyclist what am I? It's it's quite a, you know, it's there's a hole to fill there, and it's probably the same about being a writer because you know, quite a lot of the time, the vast majority of the time, being a writer, you're not actually writing anything. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah. I'm sure you guys know well, and it's like, and how like, the, and I think 
you know, the idea of the cyclist has been, uh, you know, kind of embellished and, and, you know, garnished and, and it's been marketed to us as well. And, and, you know, as a, as a kind of lifestyle, but it's not, Hmm. it's not a, it's not an easy path to stay on, even if, you know, with with everything going in your favor. Because we're technically not cyclists right now. We're, we're assets. We're we're (laughs) sitting on our ass. We are not cycling yeah i mean certainly me and max we would we, we would if somebody had to say what would you yeah i would say i'm a cyclist but yeah you're uh, right I've, you're I've, not I've doing it right the second in time so why are you a cyclist you're not physically doing it now no and you i'm never sure of something to talk about at a party because you're always the guy that you people can talk to about you know the <laughs> you know what's gone wrong with their brakes or, or what kind of bike they want to buy or that kind of thing but but it's, it's you know it's at, the, it's at the foundation of the dangerous opposition between cyclist and motorist because I I bet that you know the majority of cyclists a lot of cyclists anyway know how to drive a car and quite mm. a lot of people who drive cars also ride bikes and yet somebody generally wouldn't say they were like if they're away from the car they wouldn't say I'm a motorist it wouldn't define it wouldn't define them whereas cyclists it, it defines them. Many, many cycles. And I think what you raise, Max, is, is dead bang on. I think that that as potentially sort of banal as it sounds, the sort of uh, people coming up to you at dinner party or cocktail hour and asking about your breaks or your training or whatever else. Um, and, and, and I can certainly vouch that when one's a highly competitive cyclist or a pro, that's only exacerbated tenfold. So, so that sort of whole sort of idea of this is your entire identity is, I think, the the real danger for uh, any any elite athlete, and and I think that then and is it is that a philosophical problem if you're identifying as one thing? Is, is that something that the philosophers can talk to us about? I think it's both a philosophical problem and also. Uh, a psychological one from a, a philosophical perspective. I mean, I, I used, I think I used the word a few sentences ago, sort of reductive where you can sort of say that you're sort of, uh, this is a thread particularly in, in Sartre, but you can sort of think of, uh, any person sort of being defined by one character quality or one aspect of their selfhood uh, sort of working well to exploit them in some way, but not really fully grasping every element of their humanity. Uh, and, and I think that that certainly applies here. And I think that, that Sartre was astute on that front, as were many of the existentialists. This sort of idea of there being an essential quality about uh, a particular person. So I think that that there is something philosophical to say and and it highlights some of the dangers that that existentialism points out to uh, the previous 2500 years of of philosophical thought james at at that point and that that seems like to be even though i want i want to carry on talking and and I, i could certainly absolutely talk to to both you and Max for for many more hours. I think we have got to stop at some. Point. We do, Carlton. Thank you. So first of all, um, Max, if if you can tell me um, or tell the listeners where they can get hold 
of your books and then we'll come to to, to to james and get the exact same so websites all that kind of stuff where can we get your books you can get my books in the proverbial all good bookshops and also <laughs> the big online ones and, um, that i would urge you not to buy from go and buy from an independent bookshop but um if you want to buy direct from me which is brilliant because it means that a lot more of the, the money of the the cover price goes into my deserving pocket um you, my my publisher website is isolapress.com uh, isola is i wish i'd i'd chosen a company name that people knew how to pronounce or spell but mm-hmm. it's i-s-o-l-a press.com and uh on there you can find uh the books that i wrote for other publishers and plus the ones that i've published myself including um the yobst soon and uh rough stuff fellowship stuff like that brilliant and james where can we get the art of cycling philosophy so the art of cycling is available as max said all good bookshops uh in the united states it's published uh will be published on may 2nd by pegasus books and is already available in both hardback and soft cover in the united kingdom ireland and australia from quercus books Thanks to James Hibbard and Max Lennard there. And thanks to you for listening to episode 326 of the Spokesman podcast. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. In the next episode, I talk with BBC journalists Kate Vandy and Anna Holligan. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.